The following is an encore presentation of Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Welcome to this second special edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Last week, I dedicated the show to Dr. Martin Luther King. The show is titled Dr. Martin Luther King. Most of what he said could have been said today. If you would like to listen to the broadcast, Google KKNW and then click on to podcast. Click through to Voices of Experience at the very bottom of the page, and you're there. Later on the show, I will play a major part of a speech by former President Obama that he delivered on March 7, 2015, in Selma, Alabama. In that speech, he eloquently defined the civil rights movement up to that point. Now, our country has been gripped by massive demonstrations, which now has caught on across the world. What is still seared in my mind is the cold, detached, another-day-at-the-office look the policeman displayed as his knee was sucking the life out of George Floyd. This was done right in front of bystanders who were pleading with him to stop. I can only imagine what happened when incidents like this were not caught on video. But what that 8 minutes and 46 seconds did accomplish was to now make it impossible for white America to look the other way. Oh, and by the way, Mr. Trump, I don't think George Floyd is smiling down from heaven. But we'll never know this, will we? Because he is no longer alive to tell us. Today's show features three American civil rights activists in the 1960s. President John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and President Lyndon Johnson. Now, none of them were strong civil rights advocates and were very slow to come around. But come around they did. On June 11, 1963, two African Americans were barred from entering the University of Alabama, a public university. Governor George, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, Wallace, called out the National Guard to prevent the African American students from registering for class. President Kennedy and Attorney General Robert Kennedy federalized the National Guard after posturing and playing to the racists all across America, Wallace stepped aside and the two African-Americans registered for class. That night, President Kennedy went on the air and said this. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if, in short, he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? Who among us would then be content with the counsels of patience and delay? One hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet, not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. We preach freedom around the world, and we mean it. And we cherish our freedom here at home. But are we to say to the world, and much more importantly, to each other, that this is a land of the free, except for the Negroes, that we have no second-class citizens, 
except Negroes, that we have no class or caste system, no ghettos, no master race, except with respect to Negroes. Now the time has come for this nation to fulfill its promise. The events in Birmingham and elsewhere have so increased the cries for equality that no city or state or legislative body can prudently choose to ignore them. The fires of frustration and discord are burning in every city, north and south, where legal remedies are not at hand. Redress is sought in the streets, in demonstrations, parades, and protests, which create tensions and threaten violence and threaten lives. We face, therefore, a moral crisis as a country and a people. It cannot be met by repressive police action. It cannot be left to increase demonstrations in the streets. It cannot be quieted by token moves or talk. It is a time to act in the Congress, in your state and local legislative body, and above all, in all of our daily lives. It is not enough to pin the blame on others, to say this is a problem of one section of the country or another, or to pour the facts that we face. A great change is at hand, and our task, our obligation, is to make that revolution, that change, peaceful and constructive for all. Those who do nothing are inviting shame as well as violence. Therefore, I'm asking for your help in making it easier for us to move ahead and to provide the kind of equality of treatment which we would want ourselves. To give a chance for every child to be educated to the limit of his talents. As I've said before, not every child has an equal talent or an equal ability or equal motivation, but they should have the equal right to develop their talent and their ability and their motivation to make something of themselves. We have a right to expect that the Negro community will be responsible, will uphold the law, but they have a right to expect that the law will be fair, that the Constitution will be colorblind, as Justice Holland said at the turn of the century. This is what we're talking about, and this is a matter which concerns this country and what it stands for. And in meeting it, I ask the support of all of our citizens. Thank you very much. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. As a man whose roots go deeply into southern soil, I know how agonizing racial feelings are. I know how difficult it is to reshape the attitudes and the structure of our society. But a century has passed, more than a hundred years, since the Negro was freed, and he is not fully freed tonight. That was President Johnson putting full force of the executive branch behind the Voting Rights Act of 1964 to be followed by the Civil Rights Act of 1965. 
He delivered this speech to a joint session of Congress several months after President Kennedy was murdered in Dallas. President Johnson had been Senate Majority Leader in the 1950s, and he knew how to get the votes for what he wanted. He was the right man at the right time to push for civil rights. I'm not sure anyone else could have done this as swiftly and as effectively as President Johnson. Unfortunately for President Johnson and the country, he used his lobbying skills to get Congress to back him for escalation of the American involvement in the Vietnam War. This led to Robert Kennedy challenging him for the Democratic nomination for president in 1968. President Johnson dropped out of the race on March 31st. Five days later, on the night of April 4th, Dr. Martin Luther King was murdered in Memphis, Tennessee. Robert Kennedy was campaigning for president that day in Indianapolis, Indiana. A large crowd of mostly African-Americans had gathered to hear him speak. On the back of a flatbed truck, Robert Kennedy addressed the crowd. He was the one who broke the tragic news about the death of Dr. King. If you listen closely, you can hear him ask quietly if the crowd had heard the news. Two months later, Robert Kennedy was murdered in Los Angeles just after being declared the winner of the California primary. They know about Martin Luther King. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, 
to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, I, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. You're listening to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. If you would like to comment on today's show or get in touch with me, you can call 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. On March 7, 1965, approximately 600 people began a 54-mile march from Selma to the state capitol in Montgomery, Alabama to commemorate the death of Jamie Lee Jackson, who had been shot and killed while trying to protect his mother during a civil rights demonstration. On the outskirts of Selma, troopers began assaulting the marchers. 17 were hospitalized and 50 were treated for injuries. This event has become memorialized as Bloody Sunday. President Johnson federalized the National Guard. With this protection, the marchers resumed their journey on March 21st. The number of participants had grown to over 3,000. President Obama returned to Selma 50 years later and recaptured this moment in history and what it meant to the future. As is true across the landscape of American history, we cannot examine this moment in isolation. The March on Selma was part of a broader campaign that spanned generations. The leaders that day part of a long line of heroes. 
We gather here to celebrate them. We gather here to honor the courage of ordinary Americans willing to endure billy clubs and the chastening rod, tear gas and the trampling hoof, men and women who, despite the gush of blood and splintered bone, would stay true to their North Star and keep marching towards justice. They did as Scripture instructed. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And in the days to come, they went back again and again. When the trumpet call sounded for more to join, the people came. Black and white, young and old, Christian and Jew, waving the American flag, singing the same anthems full of faith and hope. A white newsman, Bill Plant, who covered the marches then and who is with us here today, quipped that the growing number of white people lowered the quality of the singing. To those who marched, though, those old gospel songs must have never sounded so sweet. In time, their chorus would well up and reach President Johnson, and he would send them protection and speak to the nation, echoing their call for America and the world to hear. We shall overcome. What enormous faith these men and women have. Faith in God, but also faith in America. The Americans who crossed this bridge, they were not physically imposing, but they gave courage to millions. They held no elected office, but they led a nation. They marched as Americans who had endured hundreds of years of brutal violence, countless daily indignities, but they didn't seek special treatment, just the equal treatment promised to them almost a century before. What they did here will reverberate through the ages. Not because the change they won was preordained, not because their victory was complete, but because they proved that nonviolent change is possible, that love and hope can conquer hate. As we commemorate their achievement, we are well served to remember that at the time of the marches, many in power condemned rather than praised them. Back then, they were called communists or half-breeds or outside agitators sexual and moral degenerates, and worse. They were called everything but the name their parents gave them. Their faith was questioned. Their lives were threatened. Their patriotism challenged. And yet, what could be more American than what happened in this place? What could more profoundly vindicate the idea of America than plain and humble people, unsung, the downtrodden, the dreamers not of high station, not born to wealth or privilege, not of one religious tradition, but many 
coming together to shape their country's course. What greater expression of faith in the American experiment than this? What greater form of patriotism is there than the belief that America is not yet finished? That we are strong enough to be self-critical? That each successive generation can look upon our imperfections and decide that it is in our power to remake this nation to more closely align with our highest ideals? That's why Selma is not some outlier in the American experience. That's why it's not a museum or a static monument to behold from a distance. It is instead the manifestation of a creed written into our founding documents. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. These are not just words. They're a living thing, a call to action, a roadmap for citizenship, and an insistence in the capacity of free men and women to shape our own destiny. For founders like Franklin and Jefferson, for leaders like Lincoln and FDR, the success of our experiment in self-government rested on engaging all of our citizens in this work. And that's what we celebrate here in Selma. That's what this movement was all about. One leg in our long journey toward freedom. The American instinct that led these young men and women to pick up the torch and cross this bridge, that's the same instinct that moved patriots to choose revolution over tyranny. It's the same instinct that drew immigrants from across oceans and the Rio Grande. The same instinct that led women to reach for the ballot, workers to organize against an unjust status quo. The same instinct that led us to plant a flag at Iwo Jima and on the surface of the moon. That's what makes us unique. That's what cements our reputation as a beacon of opportunity. Young people behind the Iron Curtain would see Selma and eventually tear down that wall. Young people in Soweto would hear Bobby Kennedy talk about ripples of hope and eventually banish the scourge of apartheid. Young people in Burma went to prison rather than submit to military rule. They saw what John Lewis had done. From the streets of Tunis to the Maidan in Ukraine, this generation of young people can draw strength from this place where the powerless could change the world's greatest power and push their leaders to expand the boundaries of freedom. They saw that idea made real right here in Selma, Alabama. They saw that idea manifest itself here in America. Because of campaigns like this, the Voting Rights Act was passed. Political and economic and social barriers came down. And the change these men and women wrought is visible here today in the presence of African-Americans who run boardrooms, who sit on the bench, who serve in elected office from small towns to big cities, from the Congressional Black Caucus all the way to the Oval Office.
because of what they did. The doors of opportunity swung open, not just for black folks, but for every American. Women marched through those doors. Latinos marched through those doors. Asian Americans, gay Americans, Americans with disabilities, they all came through those doors. Their endeavors gave the entire South the chance to rise again, not by reasserting the past, but by transcending the past. What a glorious thing, Dr. King might say. And what a solemn debt we owe. Which leads us to ask, just how might we repay that debt? First and foremost, we have to recognize that one day's commemoration, no matter how special, is not enough. If Selma taught us anything, it's that our work is never done. The American experiment in self-government gives work and purpose to each generation. Selma teaches us as well that action requires that we shed our cynicism. For when it comes to the pursuit of justice, we can afford neither complacency nor despair. You know, just this week I was asked whether I thought the Department of Justice's Ferguson report shows that with respect to race, little has changed in this country. And I understood the question. The report's narrative was sadly familiar. It evoked the kind of abuse and disregard for citizens that spawned the civil rights movement. But I rejected the notion that nothing's changed. What happened in Ferguson may not be unique, but it's no longer endemic. It's no longer sanctioned by law or by custom. And before the civil rights movement, it most surely was. We do a disservice to the cause of justice by in intimating that bias and discrimination are immutable, that racial division is inherent in America. If you think nothing's changed in the past 50 years, ask somebody who lived through the Selma or Chicago or Los Angeles of the 1950s. Ask the female CEO who once might have been assigned to the secretarial pool if nothing's changed. Ask your gay friend if it's easier to be out and proud in America now than it was 30 years ago. To deny this progress, this hard-won progress, our progress, would be to rob us of our own agency, our own capacity, our responsibility to do what we can to make America better. Of course, a more common mistake is to suggest that Ferguson is an isolated incident, that racism is banished, that the work that drew men and women to Selma is now complete, and that whatever racial tensions remain are a consequence of those seeking to play the race card for their own purposes. We don't need a Ferguson report to know that's not true. We just need to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to know that this nation's racial history still casts its long shadow upon us. We know the march is not yet over. We know the race is not yet won. We know that reaching that blessed destination where we are judged, all of us, by the content of our character requires admitting as much. 
facing up to the truth. 